Sun. Konnichiwa and welcome to the Board Game Dojo podcast. I'm so happy that you have joined us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for giving some of your time to us today. I have to say, I am more than a little nervous for today's podcast because. Today, we are diving into the mailbag. About a month ago, I asked you on Twitter and Discord to send your questions about board gaming in Japan to us and that we would do an episode all about it. And so that's what we are going to do today, which is the exciting part because you all asked some great questions. I'm more nervous because, well, each one of these episodes is usually scripted out completely. Word for word, I know what I'm going to say. I do a lot of research for each episode. I write it all out, so I step up to the computer and it's basically already written. I know what I'm going to say. But today, I am going to be probably a little bit more <laughs> rambly than usual because I'm going at this with no script. I've looked at the questions like once or twice and I'm just going to answer based off of my experience. And that means that. What I'm mostly going to be doing is answering based off my experience in Tokyo, not really with Japan as a whole, although I can generalize it out a little bit. And that's kind of a caveat to everything that I'm going to talk about today. Most of my experience is living in Tokyo. I've lived in Tokyo for six years,、uh, and Niigata, which is、uh, more in the upper part of Japan, for a little while as well. So all my experience is really there. So, there might be other people who have had different experiences that I just don't know about, but I will do my best to answer as accurately as possible. So, with that out of the way, let's just dive right into the mailbag. Mr. Ben asks, What are the foundational games everyone grew up with in Japan? Like the Japanese equivalent of Monopoly, Scrabble, Mousetrap, etc. Oh, that is a really good question. And there is some regional variability there. And based off kind of the age group, And what's come out at the time. So, I think the most classic example of like a board game that people grew up with would probably be Othello. And you can hear Francis talking about that in our podcast about、um, interviewing a translator. He talked about that Othello was his kind of starting point getting into board gaming. So, I think that that is, that is definitely one. And it's kind of akin to checkers where a lot of people's Parents just have a copy of Othello in their home somewhere. And so it's just available. But it doesn't necessarily mean that if you play Othello, you're going to get into board gaming. It's just kind of there. But another one would be Sugoroku.、Uh, that's S U G O R O K U. And there's two kinds of it. Ban Sugoroku is like pretty much obsolete at this point. But you have E Sugoroku, which is basically like a snakes and ladders game. It's very, very similar to that. But Sugoroku at some point actually changed to be the common term for just board games in general there for a little while.、Um, now it's just Bodo Game. But you actually will find some shops that are like, Sugo, like Sugoroku Ya, which means board game shop. And that is the name of a board game shop, actually.、Um, and it is thought that Mario Party is actually based off of. Sugoroku, and the fact that everybody can kind of understand what's going on with this, and everybody has experience with that game. So then they made Mario Party very much like this. So that's one.、Um, Daifugo is another big one. And that's a climbing shedding game where the losing player has to give the winning player their highest cards. And the winning player,、um, because it comes like the boss or the millionaire, really, they actually call it like rich man, poor man in some areas as well. Um, 
the rich man gives the poor man cards as well. So the poor man is giving the rich man their best cards, basically, and the rich man can give the poor man anything they want. But then the poor man starts the next round. And then certain numbers, again, this is kind of based on all the variations that there are in this game, certain numbers can have special rules. So a lot of people will play that if you play an eight, it just like ends the trick right there, just ends the meld right there. And it's because of these rules that on Monday's episode, when we talked about Roll Right Fugel, we were talking about that it's really not like Daifugo because these two sets of rules are really what make Daifugo Daifugo. And because they don't have it, it's kind of like, okay, this is really just a climbing game. You're just using Daifugo as a selling point because people know what Daifugo is. And that's because it is one of these foundational games. I would think the third one that most everybody knows to some degree is going to be Karuta, which is just a speed game where one person will draw a card. It can be played with Hanafuda deck. It can be played with um a lot of times it'll be used in english classes so i'm very very familiar with this game in which one person will draw a card so let's say we're playing with an english deck a learning english karuta game i might draw an a and then they need to find the card that is on the table that would match it so it might be apple at that sense and then they get to keep the cards if they drew it first so it's a speed game like that so that's a pretty popular kids game there's so many variations the other ones i think at this point there are two in which I would say are like the foundational games of this generation now. And one of them would be what they call Jinsei Game, but you definitely know it as the game of life. It is incredibly popular here now. You're going to see it in board game shops. You're going to see it in tourist places, like different branded things. And you see that in the US and the UK as well. All these variations, all these different themes of the same game. And and that's a really popular one now. Even Sumachan's parents have a copy of it. And they bought that, I think, when she was a teenager when board games were first starting to get popular in Japan. So there's that one. And I think now kids know the game Hatteyu game. And in this game, it, there's no English equivalent to it. I uh, you Maybe we'll say like, uh, say it. I don't know. But you take turns, you say a phrase. So on the card, it'll say something like, let's say, hmm, I'm okay. Okay. In Japanese, daijoubu. But... You might say, I'm okay. And you have to say it in different ways that are listed on the card. There are like eight to 10 different ways on the card in which you're going to say that one phrase. And you need to guess which one it is. So maybe one way of saying it would be, I'm okay. And you're trying to guess and you look down the list of different ways you could say that. And you go, oh, I think it's definitely the actually not okay. And you have to base it off of that. So that's a pretty popular game, and it's actually made by the creator of Puyo Puyo, like Puyo Puyo, Tetris, and a lot of other games. So that's kind of an interesting one. I would also say, I know I said there, there was only two, but hey, we're going unscripted, so I just, another one popped into my head. But I think probably actually the most popular game in which people know at this point is probably Werewolf. There are so many, so many versions of Werewolf that people know that I think that it has actually become a foundational game in Japan. My students, no matter what school that I was in, no matter what age group that I was teaching, they knew about their, well, they call it Jinro game, but werewolf or mafia. And you can tell when you go to the board game store how popular it is, because if you go to a board game store here, you're going to see an entire section devoted to variations on werewolf. I know when I went to Yellow Submarine, I think two or three weeks ago, in Akihabara, like you enter the store 
And then if you go directly left, they've just got like that back corner is all like 20, 30, 40 different versions of Werewolf. And it's like, wow, that is incredible. So I think that those are probably the ones that are foundational games. Uh, Daifugo, Sugoroku, Othello, Karuta, Hatteyugeime, and Werewolf, I think are probably the ones. Great question, Mr. Ben. And I'm going to come back to you here because I'm going to try to put, if you ask multiple questions, I'm going to try to put them together. Or at least back to back. So Mr. Ben also asks, where can you play board games in Japan? And what is the etiquette around board games in the board game space? Oh, so this is a good one. I, I kind of have to give a little bit of a background here. Because games here are still, hmm. In my experience, you definitely have the very big hobbyists, right? Like you know, in any other country that have large collections in their home. But that is an extraordinary minority. This is where I want to reiterate that like my experience is mostly in Tokyo where space is a premium. So for the most part, people just don't have the room to hold a bunch of board games. And, and so, yes, I have friends that have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 board games in their home. But I have so many more friends or people that I've met at meetups or people that I've met at board game cafes who they'll have one or two like full sized board games. And those will be like a gateway game. It'll be like Catan. It's always it's almost always Catan and then one or two other ones. It'll be like Catan and maybe Crash Octopus or Catan and uh, Yoda Yoda Penguin. It'll be something like that. It'll be two games in which are pretty easy to get to the table with people that come over to their house. And then they'll have like eight to 10 card games. And so really, if you want to play one of these bigger games, you're going to be going to the board game cafe. And board game cafes are really the primary spot where even if you own a bunch of board games, you're probably going to take those games to a board game cafe and play them there because more often than not, you might have room for the collection, but you just gave up the room that you needed to have a big enough table to actually play these things. So board game cafes are really the main spot. I think a majority of people play their games. It'll be board game cafes, or if you do meetups, it'll be at like a community center. And this works out pretty well because board game cafes are pretty much everywhere now, even in small little towns that you would not really expect there to be one. And I think the interesting thing that really brings out this point is that during COVID and a little bit before COVID, board games were really starting to get really, 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 really popular in Japan. You just see it. More people are talking about it. The board game Twitter is starting to become more and more popular, right? So you would think that, okay, if board games are becoming more popular, there's gonna be more board game stores, right? But not really. What happened was there just became a ton more board game cafes and the board game cafes that already had existed started expanding a lot more. So I think the best example probably is Jelly Jelly Cafe. They're just the biggest one in Tokyo. They had a couple locations and then suddenly they had like eight, 10 locations. I was like, whoa, okay. But it's just because they give people the opportunity to play these big games, both because they can bring their copies to the store, but also because Jelly Jelly Cafe just has a lot of big box games there. It is an interesting observation that the 
ratio in board game cafes of big games to small games are pretty much the opposite of what you'll find at a yellow submarine or a board game store because at a board game cafe i would have to say probably hmm it what seems like it is more 60 40 towards big games maybe 70 30 depending on the one that you go to i've been to one that are like 80 percent big games but then you go to yellow submarine and it's completely flipped it's much more towards smaller games and that's because more people are going to buy themselves a copy for their home of a much smaller game. Whereas they'll go to the board game cafe to, to play the big ones that they suddenly have room for. So that was a lot of, that was a very, very long answer of where can you play board games in Japan? You can play board games mostly in board game cafes. If you're going to do a meetup while you're here, which I do recommend doing, there's a lot of foreigner meetups to do. Um, you can do that at a community center. You can reserve a table at uh, like a TCG store, like a trading card game store, um, like Yellow Submarine. I don't really recommend it that much. The atmosphere is just not great in my experience, but if you want to, that is certainly a thing. And what is the etiquette around board games and the board game space? Um, so mostly when you go to board game cafes, they are going to require you to buy a drink. After you buy the drink and finish that, then you can like you can bring in your own food and drink. So afterwards, it's fine. It's almost assumed that you're going to be eating and drinking around the game, actually. And so depending on the kind of snack that you have, there are different ways. So if I'm eating something that is not messy at all, let's say, so one, one of the main things that if you come to Japan, you'll notice is that at the beginning of every meal, they get you like a wet wipe. They call oshibori in Japanese, but it's basically like a wet napkin. And so a lot of times people will make you one when you go over to their house if you're going to eat something especially something salty like a pretzel or a potato chip or something like that so for the most part like if they if it's something like that where you can just wipe your hands pretty easily like cool like they'll do that but for example maybe flaming hot cheetos is what you want to eat now a lot of um people will be like no 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 like i'm pretty sure that that is the like stereotype of like do not bring flaming hot cheetos to my game night that kind of thing but in Japan, it's pretty common to bring something like that because what people end up doing is they'll end up eating them with chopsticks. So they don't even touch it with their hands. And so if the host is going to supply something like a snack or if somebody brings a snack, then the host will supply chopsticks to eat it with and there'll be no problem. So kind of an interesting thing there. Yeah, with etiquette, I don't think there's really anything else that's really different than that. I mean... It is pretty seriously taken of, like, you help clean up when you're done. Like, absolutely. Or um, there's a lot more division of labor, if you will. Um, so if, like, I'm going to clean up this game, I'll say, like, I got it. Then somebody else will be make sure that they're, like, reading the rules for the next game that you want to play at the board game cafe. So everybody's kind of working. When somebody else is working, the other people are working. Otherwise, no, there's nothing that interesting. Thank you for the question. Moonshots wanted to build off of Mr. Ben's question. So to build off of that, what is the overall culture surrounding online versus offline consumption? The U.S. loves board game geek, the hotness, top 100, crowdfunding, Twitter news, and similar stuff. How much does it differ there? I am, of course, aware of game market and the use of Twitter for a lot of publishers, but how much does the general gaming scene actually use stuff like that? Oh, man, this was hmm, this was probably the hardest question because there's so much generalization that I have to do. And it comes down to a lot of my board gaming friends actually are like really deep into the hobby. So they're all over that kind of stuff. They're all over 
Twitter, their crowdfunding, whatever. But basing it off my Japanese friends, I would say that Twitter is really the predominant one. I think you kind of answered your own question in there by saying that, hey, Twitter is used for a lot of publishers. Yeah, it's used by a lot of publishers because that's where the audience is. Twitter is really, really popular in Japan because anonymity is very important to Japanese people. And so the idea that you don't have to give out your real, your personal data to use Twitter is important. So I think that that's why actually the publishers are on there because that's where they're going to reach their audience. Now, there is also Bodoge, which is B O D O G E. It's definitely not as extensive as Board Game Geek by any stretch of the imagination, but it does include a lot of interesting information. Like some board game cafes will keep their inventory up to date of what they have. So then they will post that to Bodoge. So if you want to try a game, you can look it up on Bodoge and you can see what board game cafes have it for you to try. So I think that that's cool. The other thing is that reviews are a bit in Japan, and that's probably partly with the rise of Dojin games, in which they don't publish the rules online all the time. And this is kind of changing, but a lot of time these smaller games won't post the rules online. So then the reviews section of Bodoge will be a lot of people. Like 80%, 85% of the review will be how to play the game. And then only 15, 20% of it will be what they actually think about the game. So when you actually type in review and you want to read and then translate、um, Japanese reviews, that's often what you're going to get with board games. But otherwise, I would say, in the general sense, it's often word of mouth is how people find these games. And If not word of mouth, then they go to the board game store itself. I think I have seen more people in Japan asking employees for their recommendations on games than I have in the US ever. And I think partly that's because of this difference of like, you have Reddit that is very popular and you have Board Game Geek, which is really popular. If, like, if people want recommendations for games, they go and they do it. They go, they go on these forums and then they ask, like, hey, I want this game. But because it's not as popular here, they're asking the employees there, hey, I like this game. What do you recommend for me? Crowdfunding, there is a bit. There's Campfire that is decently popular, but it's still not anywhere close to as popular as it is abroad, for sure.、Um, I do think partly that's because it can be pretty expensive to import things here. Uh, the shipping costs, I don't even know why. It seems like so many things are made in China and then they're sent over Japan to the to like the US or something. And then it's like, oh, it becomes super, super expensive to ship to Japan. So even people who love crowdfunding,、um, we've talked about this on, at so many meetups of even the people that moved to Japan from the US and were super huge crowdfunders before have. Just completely almost gotten rid of all of their crowdfunding habits because they just can't afford it at this point anymore. And I know that there's lots of places around the world that have that same problem. So, I guess to come back to your question of what is the overall culture with online versus offline, I think if you're in deep in board games, I think you're on Twitter, you're on Bodoge, you're probably on Board Game Geek.、Um, but If you're just generally into it, I know a lot more people that are much more just if they hear something or they have a friend that's into board gaming, then they're just spreading it by word of mouth and getting recommendations from board game shops. All right. And then Moonshot's 
follows it up with how popular are things like 3D upgraded bits and how common are print and plays? Ooh, I think that these two are completely on the opposite side of the spectrum in popularity. Um, 3D upgraded bits, I have not seen at all. Like, oh man, I'm, I'm trying to think back. Like, in my six years, I don't think I have seen anybody other than Kickstarter. I'm excluding Kickstarter here. But yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen people purchase it. And I can't remember even seeing any in board game stores or anything like that. They're just not popular. Because again, I think it comes back to part of my answer of where people play board games is that well, people only generally have like one, two, three, maybe full size board games in their house. And then the board game cafes are not going to upgrade their 3D upgraded like the board game cafes are not going to upgrade it to the premium stuff for their cafes. They're just not going to do that, especially because of the dominance of food and drinks around the games. Like they're just not going to do that. So I, I don't think I've ever seen people with 3d upgraded bits here other than Kickstarter, but on the other end of the spectrum, print and plays are huge here. You'll actually see them at the game market. I've multiple times been to the game market and people just, you, you, you go to their table and you're like, where's your games? Where's, where's your game? Oh, we're just here and we're going to sell here. This is the QR code to the, the print and play of our game. It's like, oh, all right, cool. Yeah, print and plays are pretty big. And a lot of, even if they're not doing that, I know that there are a bunch of companies like uh, Exist. It's like EX1ST. I don't, X-First? Exist? I don't know. But they, uh, Engro Games, who we're going to do a publisher review for them, coming up but they're the ones that made bug council of backyardia but they would actually start with print and play versions of their games and then for the game market they would make this really nice physical edition of their games and so i know that print and plays often with dojin games as well which i'll explain what dojin games are later because we do have a question about it print and plays are really popular here you do run into the thing of a lot of people don't have printers in their house They'll just go to the convenience store that's near their house and print it out. So it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, 3D upgraded bits, not popular. Print and plays, pretty popular. Thank you for the questions. Speaking of Dojin, Grath44000 says, Tell me all about the Dojin stuff and how popular importing foreign games is using paste-ups and rules translations. Ooh, okay. Dojin games are such a weird concept to define because it can mean so many different things. And people will say that, and people will say doujin game and mean different things when they say it. So for some people, they use it synonymously and interchangeably with indie game. Doujin games are just Japan's indie games. Okay. Some people will say that it's like, hey, this is a game that is made for fun and not really for profit. But then it's like, well, if it's not really made for profit, why are they like going to the game market and trying to sell? A ton of these well i guess maybe they made it for fun but i don't know if i completely agree with it but really i think the no matter which definition you kind of go with in the general sense dojin games are amateurs are amateur made games and the best way to describe dojin games are this kind of mystery box in which you don't know what you're going to get inside of it how good the quality is going to be inside because these are self-published games. So you're going to get games that are really good, like Trick of Time, like that game, 
Love that game. And now he went from there. He's designed, I think, one other game, but now he's a consultant on a lot of the Kickstarters coming out of Japan. So, cool. You have the weird, like, I have a game called Kumiko and Katsuhisa, in which it's a trick-taking game. It's a two-player trick-taking game in which you are recreating a boardroom battle that this actually happened in Japan of this daughter and her father. Like, the daughter was assigned to take over the furniture company when he was got when he got old then she made a bunch of changes to modernize it and he hated it so then he fired her and then he instilled himself as the company president again and then the shareholders called a meeting to decide which one of them they were going to oust so you have very specifically themed games that are definitely not going to be super popular with the wider audience but then, you know, that's part of why Dojin games are kind of fun. You get these themes that you would never, ever see. But then you have absolute garbage as well that really needed somebody to to do some edits. They really needed to like fix too many things. So it's kind of always this like mystery box of what you're going to get. You know, you don't know. But we made it a point the last time we went shopping to make sure that we grabbed a lot of these games. So we're going to be reviewing a lot more of these Dojin games in the future. Also, you might, with Dojin stuff, get um, <laughs> like copyright infringement stuff. So every once in a while, you'll go to Sudagaya and you'll see a fan-made game about like a popular anime character or a popular TV show or something like that. And you'll go and you'll look it up. And it doesn't technically exist because if it if it existed, it would definitely be copyright infringement. So you will run into that every once in a while. And I, I just kind of laugh when it happens. Most of the time it's like anime girl stuff. So I'm not super interested in it, but then I'll go back like a week later and it'll be gone. So somebody was interested in it. And I think that's kind of a good overall summation of Dojin games. Dojin games, if you look at the characters, the kanji, the Japanese characters for Dojin, it means same person. And it used to be the same person, like one person made it, but now it's evolved into like a group of like-minded people that are interested in kind of the same thing. And so a lot of these Dojin games are targeting a very specific audience that would be interested in the same thing. So if you go to the game market, you're going to see a lot of these booths that are like, wow, like especially the anime girl stuff for the life of me. I don't, I personally do not get it. I'm not judging anybody who does like awesome. But like those lines are so ridiculously long all day, especially at the beginning when they're giving out like free stuff to go with the game. It is incredible. But that's the point of these Dojin games is to make a game by people who love something for other people who love that thing. It might be really popular. It might not be. There are, are tons of Dojin game companies that like started as Dojin games, but then became companies. So Square Enix, if you know them. For, from video games. They started as a Dojin game. Uh, Sashi and Sashi, they started as Dojin game. And then they grew into being a company. So now they're not considered Dojin games anymore, but they started as one. So that's my very, very long and kind of rambling answer about uh, what Dojin stuff is. But you can always find um, a section of um, board game stores that are devoted to these. So you'll always be able to find them Know, what, know where they are. There's usually signage around them. So if you want to explore them when you're here, like you'll, you'll easily be able to find where they are. 
and then how popular importing foreign games is. I think it really depends on the game that you're looking for, the kind of game that you're looking for. So you do have shops that do specialize in this, like Shosen Grande. And if you watched the Ultimate Shopping Guide in Japan YouTube video, I don't remember exactly what I named it, but we talked about that. Shosen Grande is a store that I very strongly dislike. They way, 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 way overcharge for their importing fees. Like, it's just ridiculous. It's like double what it costs to just get an Amazon US account and import it from there or something. But, I mean, clearly there's enough people doing it that they've kept in business. So, hey, I guess I'm the minority there. Um, but I would say that importing foreign games is really based on the weight of game. So, and how hard it is to find the game. So you'll have games like, Almost all of Uwe Rosenberg's games, for example, they come out either around the same time or even before it does abroad in Japanese. So that's no problem. And I have one friend who's very, very excited about this all the time. Or party games. They often will come out at around the same time or maybe just like a month later in Japan and in fully Japanese. So that's not a problem. But if you're looking for something like a Lacerda or a Splatter Spellin or an 18xx game, now you're talking about that you're going to have to import those because you're just not going to find them. I think the only Splatter Spellin game I've seen here in Japanese is Food Chain Magnet. So it really it really depends on the how much the publisher games like you won't you won't really find games by Lacerda. Only like Lacerda games are pretty much like a Kickstarter. So you'll see um, a lot of Japanese board game meetup like chats will talk about like when Lacerda's new stuff is coming out because that might be the only chance they get to get it in Japanese. But otherwise, I don't really see that much importing because there really nowadays is not that much of a need to, especially with medium and lightweight games. You're not going to see it that much. But in terms of paste ups and translated rule books, um, I don't really see too much paste ups really. I don't really see them very often, but rules translations, it kind of falls into two main camps that I see. In one camp, you have Hobby Japan and Sugorokia, and they do official translations, um, and Arclight as well. So Arclight is who Francis, who we interviewed for the translator interview, he works for them. They bring in games, they officially translate it, it's going to come with the Japanese rulebook already in there. Great. But what I'm seeing a lot more of lately, and I don't know if it's just where I'm going, but what's much more common now is to bring in a Euro game. And then it's going to be in its native language, but then attached to the box itself is like one of those plastic sheets that you might see like on a package when where it's like a big plastic sheet and then there's a pocket inside of it and in that pocket will be a it might be official it might not be japanese rule book and it's usually printed out on like an a4 sheet of paper or stapled packet of a4 papers and it'll just be attached to the game box on the back if you're going to the game market you're going to see a lot of this my copy of caesar is like this that i bought from the game market where there is a company that imports these games and then they just attach uh, kind of unofficial or they translated the rulebook and then they sell it that way to people at the game market. I see a lot more of that and less so of paste ups. I'm actually trying to think of if I've ever seen any paste ups 
and it's much more and it's weird because it's much more common that I've seen people buy the Japanese version of the game and then paste it up into English and bring that to meetups here than the other way around. So yeah, paste ups not so much. It'll be like an unofficial rule book usually that you see. Thank you so much for the questions. That was interesting. And I hope you were interested in it as well. The next two are not questions, actually. They're just、uh, requests, really. Narumaki on our Shopping in Japan YouTube channel says I do wish you mentioned the best way to buy and ship a game to your native country. If staying for a prolonged stay out, can't carry in luggage. Okay.、Um, I, I, I didn't really mention this in the video because I don't really have that much experience with it. Um, I've only shipped things back to the US once.、Um, but that's partly because when, I mean, like, if, if I live in Japan, like, I don't need to like, take it with me with luggage and stuff. But I would actually say that the better way of doing it is shipping it to the airport instead.、Um, In country shipping is extremely cheap in Japan because of the omiyage culture. Omiyage is souvenir. So the souvenir culture here is just dominant. It is kind of expected that if you go somewhere, you bring a souvenir back for your coworkers, like especially on your team. And so each region has their own like famous souvenir. And there are people who legitimately like travel for these different souvenirs. They've gotten so popular. There's places that I know in Japan only because I know their like, famous food souvenir from that part. And so, because you're, like, people are often shipping this back and forth, in country shipping is really, really cheap. And so, I often tell people that if you're going to fly out, if you're like, shopping here and stuff, and you just have a lot and you don't want to carry it with you, go to Kudo Neko and just have them ship it to the airport for you. They'll take down your information of what airline you're going to be. So, you got to go with your airline number. You got to know what flight you're going to be on and what time you fly out. And they'll make sure that they get it to the airport ready to go for you by that flight. I do think you have to do it at least, I think it's, it's definitely at least 24 hours in advance, if not 48, that you have to do it. But if you're looking to stay for a prolonged stay and, don't, and not carry your luggage, shipping it should be pretty good. But if you really want to ship your game to your native country, I have heard there are some people that swear by boat is the way to do it, and then they wait like a month or two to get their games. I know during COVID that that was not a really smart move because freights were so expensive. Kudo Neko, you can ship it and it'll get to, I know for sure, I'm, I'm talking from the US. It took a week to get there, and it cost me. Something like $150, $200, depending on the box size, of course. Like, I had huge boxes that were heavy. So, it cost me, I think, like $200, but I got it in a week. And at that point, it was like I could put it on a boat for $120, $150, and it'll come in two months, or I can pay $200 and get it in a week. So, I just chose to do it that way. But generally speaking, people generally will do either c r u d o Nickel if they want it fast or. Or some people swear by boat. But I don't have a lot of experience in that, so I don't really know. I'm sorry. All right, the other one is Karasu no Radio, which just means like crow radio. 
uh, on Twitter, a request. I want you to explain Catan in the next episode by speaking simple English slowly. Of course, we already know about Catan, but that's fine because we are not good at English and want to study it. So this is a Japanese uh, board gamer. Uh, there, there was like a there was a thread that they posted, um, and I think that that's an interesting idea for sure. I hadn't really thought about that, and we've been talking about it a lot recently of how we can make that work. So keep so I'll keep you posted on what we decide to do. But I think that's a really cool idea of maybe doing an episode or two that are kind of um, teaching a board game in easy English. So we might even do a different venture doing something like that. So I'll keep you posted. Thank you for the request. And thank you to Narumaki. I forgot to thank you. Well, that's going to do it for today. Thank you for hanging on in there. I know that this was probably a rambly, rambly, rambly episode. I know I'm not really looking forward to editing this later. But thank you so much for your questions. I think we're going to start doing this more because I do want to interact with you more. I want to hear from you. What are you interested in? What do you want to hear about from us? It's so much more fun when this is a two-way conversation. So we're going to do this more often. I will come up with a prompt every month or so, and then we'll get it. And then at the end of the month, we'll we'll do another one of these mailbag episodes. If you want to let us know what you think, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Discord, or you can email us at boardgamedojopodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, concerns, whatever it might be. And we thank you, thank you so much for joining us today and again for your questions. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, jane. 